They don't pay off because you have a good process. They don't throw champagne on one another in a locker room because of the process. They pay off and they throw champagne on one another because of the result. I like that. Join the conversation with Tommy Weber. Pro and college baseball coach Tommy Weber brings you cutting-edge interviews and thought-provoking commentary in a weekly podcast dedicated to baseball, sports, current events, and the world. Check us out on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and TommyWeberBaseball.com. And make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TommyWeberBaseball. It's time to get the conversation started, so here's your host, Tommy Weber. From the Gotham Podcast Studio in the heart of downtown New York City, my hometown, the greatest city in the world. This is The Conversation. I am Tommy Weber. Welcome aboard on a gorgeous, gorgeous, finally, mid-May day. Uh, I hacked it around a little bit today on the golf course, but that will not last very long. So if you're going to play me for some money, you better get me in the next couple of days because I'm going to be tough to beat the rest of the summer. Um, Beautiful, beautiful day here in New York. Uh, Got a great show. Got a lot to talk about. Um, Lots happening. Baseball season is in full swing. Um, I got a really, really dear friend of mine who's been on the show before. uh, And I um, gave him very, very short notice, and he's kind enough to join us. Uh, My buddy Chandler Taylor is uh, with the Houston Astros. Um, He is... Uh, with the Fayetteville Woodpeckers, high A. Uh, right now he's rehabbing a slight injury that he had, but he's going to get back really soon. Uh, you all know Chandler, who was on my show before, uh, was one of the real heroes of our 2017 championship team, uh, both at the bat and even more so with his glove in his arm. He made two plays, a catch and a throw, that really um, were the reason, as big a reason as any, that we went on to uh, win that championship. So um, I want to welcome aboard my buddy, CT. How are you, pal? I'm doing well, T-Web. Thanks for, uh, thanks for inviting me. Thanks for having me again. And, um, I'm blessed to be back on here. Well, you are, um, as you know, you have an open invitation. Anytime you want to come, it's, uh, really just give me a call, give me a text. Uh, I know you got a busy schedule, so, uh, but I, I knew that you were available and I took advantage of having you, uh, on, uh, before you get back to the grind. Um, I got a bunch of, uh, emails from friends of mine and people I know whenever I do, whenever I have a guest, I always tell them that I'm having a guest and to give me some questions that they might want answered. First and foremost, how's the rehab going? It's going really well. Um, started swinging the bat this week i've uh, been taking dry swings and tomorrow's the first day um since the injury that i'll actually get to make contact with a baseball so i'm excited about uh that having that pure feeling again mm-hmm. and uh just kind of being in the cage and and finding the answers in the dirt like ben hogan i love it um so a couple of questions that I have for you um, that, you know, we obviously we've gone over everything. We speak all the time. We're either texting or talking. Um, and it's one of the great, really great pleasures of, of being a guy who's been involved in baseball my whole life and coached guys and uh, is the continuous, the continuing relationships that you have with your players. Nothing is more gratifying than that uh, to a guy who has done what I have done all these years. Um, and you and I really get in the weeds a lot. I mean, you're a pretty bright guy. 
really, really high baseball IQ. And, and you know, you, you're, you're I, I think uh, one of the things that really impressed me about you when we first met was just how um, how high your baseball IQ was. Uh, and, and, and how high the baseball IQ was of so many guys on that particular team. Um, you guys really were uh, all in. It was a deep dive into really, really high level baseball. Um, l- l- let me ask you a couple of questions. Um, at this time last year, you're awaiting the draft, right? Um, tell people, uh, and as you know, I'm representing a couple of guys in this year's draft, and you know it's 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 interesting. It's a, it's a different facet of what I've done. It's a it's still coaching in in a sense, but now not only am I coaching players, I'm coaching their parents. Uh, you know, I'm getting calls about what do you think? Where do you think he's going to go? How much? What's the bottom line number? Uh, what were you going through uh, last May fifteenth, anticipating the draft in a few weeks? Um, well, I think I think for me. Um, my thought processes were a little bit different, um, than a lot of kids who are approaching the draft, you know, may it be for the first time or for some kids, it's the second or third time they're kind of going through this. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for me, I went through it in high school, um, thought I might've had a chance to, to get picked in the first five or six rounds out of high school. And, you know, it didn't work out, um, ended up turning down, you know, a decent amount of money to, to go to Alabama. And I don't regret that, but at Alabama, um, you know, this weekend is actually coming up on the last weekend of the college regular season for, you know, everybody pretty much. And for me being a 22 year old junior, uh, who went to the Cape as a draft eligible sophomore after being picked and, you know, ended up winning the league and stuff like that. It wasn't as much about money uh, for me as it was just like trying to stay really present. Um, I wasn't having the best of best of years uh, last year in college. And, you know, it was more of how do I just approach every day? Like I'm already a pro. And I think that, you know, going through some of those struggles that I went through last year kind of prepared me really well for the transition to pro ball that along with, you know, being on a Cape team with, like you said, a bunch of guys who just, you know, were really some real baseball grinders, real players, you know, and we've talked about that a a ton of times. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. But, but those guys on that Brewster team and just about midway through the season, last year in college, just realizing that eventually I was going to be a pro no matter what. And that every day I was going to have to bring something to the club and just realizing that halfway through just kind of made me, I guess, take the the little bit of pressure that I was putting on myself to, to get picked wherever, or, you know, get however much money. It kind of just let that pressure subside. And I just, for the last half of the year, I just ended up going out and, you know, tried to bring something to the team to help them win every single day. And, and I think the more that guys can do that um, in the face of the draft, especially guys who are on teams that are going to be lucky enough to play in the postseason, mm-hmm. um, they're going to set themselves up for more success than they know just by, you know, taking the mentality of, 
I got to bring something to my club every day. You know, it sounds to me like what you're describing is something that I told, I spoke to the Cleveland Indians today about one of my guys. And then obviously it turns into, you know, a philosophical discussion about baseball. All these discussions are turning into these 20 half hour conversations I'm having with these scouts and cross checkers. Um, and they asked me about other guys in the Cape and other guys that I coached and other guys that I didn't coach, just, you know, my general thoughts on stuff. And I said to one of their, one of the guys to, today to the Indians, and I said, um, you know, I think it's important that baseball starts to remember what business it's in. Uh, it's not in the baseball business. It's in the winning business. And what you want are winners. You, you want to, you know, this, I, I think some, the, the creation, the trying to create baseball players, uh, I, I, I think it's misdirected. Uh, I think you're trying to create guys who can play. You know, you're trying to take guys who can already play and you want to turn them into winners because the reality is there's no parade for the team that comes in second place. There's no ring for the team that comes in fifth place. You could have all the baseball players and all the philosophies and, you know, all the credos in the world that create, in quotes, baseball players. But what you're really in the business of is winning. It's all about winning all the time. And what you described to me is a very, very professional winning mentality. Now, I know, I'm not going to ask you because I know already and I, I don't want to put you in that position. I know that in pro bowl, uh, a lot of times, you know, winning is really not that important, especially at the minor league level. Um, and I, I think that's a mistake organizations make. I think winning always has to be important because at the end of the day, it's really not about the process at the professional level. It's about the results. And I know people love to to preach process, and that's all great. But at, when it's really all said and done, if you can get a hit with the other end of the bat in a crucial situation that wins you a game in the playoffs, that's fine. I don't really care how you do it. Um, and I think your description of your mentality last year is essentially, I want to be a good team guy and help my team win. And that takes all the pressure off of me as an individual to have to hit the high note every night. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll say something to that. Um, as an organization, I think the Astros do um, a good job of uh, kind of putting winning at the forefront, even at the minor league level. Um, you know, they've done a good job of, putting us in places where, you know, we're not worried about, you know, where we're going to live, how we're living this, that, and the other. Um, that way we can really go to the ballpark, focus on our craft and really worry about winning when the lights come on. And, you know, the Astros get a bad rap of, of being the, you know, the spearhead of the data analytics group of teams and, and stuff like that. But, um, you know, the group of players that I've been lucky enough to play with and even the group of, of guys ahead of me, um, you know, that's that's kind of what's at the forefront of our minds is we want to help the team win every single night. And I think if you get enough guys like that, then, you know, it, it starts really in spring training every single year. It's just kind of an infectious mentality and like more guys start to take it on, you know, each year. So if you... Um could go back to Alabama or go back to the SEC and talk to all the draft eligible guys. What's a piece of advice you would give them? Be a pro in one sentence, be a pro anything, anything that, that comes your way um, from February 15th until the draft, especially in your draft year, you know, you could the best, preparation you can give yourself for professional baseball is 
acting like a pro before you get there. I agree. And um, I was lucky enough to have a, a few guys, you know, including yourself, to really hammer home that, you know, sentence, really. That one sentence is just like handle yourself like a pro in all situations. And, you know, I'm not saying that I've handled every situation that has come at me as professionally as possible. I'm not saying that nobody, nobody's going to, you know, we're all human. We're all going to trip up and and make mistakes and stuff like that. But, um, if that is the first question you ask yourself, anytime, you know, you're presented with a dilemma or a decision is how would a pro handle it? Then you're going to, you're going to put yourself in the best chance, you know, in the best spot to, to be successful. Uh, as a kid, Aside from parents and relatives, uh, when you think back, who inspired you in baseball? I would say that the it was more of like a group. Um, you know, I was lucky enough to play on a on a travel team from the time I was like twelve to about fourteen or fifteen until we like split up and all went our separate ways and you know, we're busy with high school and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, you know, when I was 12, I was probably one of the, the best players in the area. And our team was mostly local. It was all our players were from the state of Alabama. Most of them were within a 50 mile radius of each other. We had all played against each other growing up. But when we moved to from the small field to the in-between field, it was like, I took this step back because there was a group of guys on that team that were all like maturing faster than right. the rest of us. Right. You know, they were bigger, faster, yeah, the physical, stronger. physical the mismatch. Yep. Yep. Right. Yep. And it was just like that group. Those were the guys that I wanted to be better than. And I was around them for the majority of my developmental years leading into high school. And I think that group, like, instilled the this work ethic in me that like I just wanted to be better than all of them and eventually like when I like crested that hill it was like I was free from like being second fiddle to anyone and like I look back on that and that was like where I learned how to be the best player while I wasn't the best player on my own team wow that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Did you have who, what major leaguer did you sort of emulate? I guess when I was about 13 or 14 was when I really started paying attention to, to big league baseball, like every night. Um, probably Robinson Cano was like the guy that I wanted to be like, um, just like with the fluidity, he played the game. It was yeah. just all, all of it came so easy to him. And I'm not saying that, you know, people should pick a big leaguer and like try to be like them. But like, I wanted to make it look as easy as Robinson Cano made it look. Yeah, I, I, I love that because I, I actually think that, you know, it, imitating, seeing people who do what they do the best and taking something from it while you may not be copying them, um, trying to get the essence of them. For you, it might be his rhythm, that whole beautiful, syrupy kind of fluidity that he had where you're right. It looked like 
you know, the bat wasn't even being swung. And then whack, you know, he was hitting one off the facade at Yankee Stadium. Or, or of course, you know, the beautiful way in which he played second base. I don't know that I've ever seen anybody play second base better uh, than Robinson Cano. I mean, just incredible. Uh, and you're right. What I, what I, when I look at Robinson Cano, I see that kind of, you know, just, geez, is he sleeping? Nope. He makes the play. I mean, he's just so smooth. You're right. Um, but I, I do believe that it's, it's not a bad idea for people to watch closely and, you know, intently watch people who do things really well and take from them, you know, make observations as to what strikes you about them and try to incorporate that into your own craft, whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's baseball or music or anything else. Um, and I don't think we do enough of that. I think, I think what we do now, it seems to me, is we model, we model perfect based on some numbers and sort of um, just ask guys to try to hit those numbers. Like, you know, if you're not swinging at a hundred miles an hour, we try to get you to swing a hundred miles an hour. And um, I I think that um, like anything else, that's kind of new. Hopefully adjustments are going to be made as time goes on uh, to to form a more perfect system. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think, I think that's really spot on. It's like, when I watch, when I watch Robinson Cano play, obviously, like I don't play second base, but like he was a plus defender. Like I remember thinking to myself when I was fourteen years old, like why doesn't he play shortstop? And then like you look, you look at shortstop, and like you got Derek Jeter there. Obviously, like you're gonna have Derek Jeter there every single day. I mean, he was a fixture for twenty mm-hmm. years, mm-hmm. but at the same time. Like, I just wanted to make it look that easy. And I felt like the only way that I could get there was by working on it to where it was second nature, where I could be asleep and still do the things that I wanted to do. Flow, flow. I love that word, flow. Let things flow. Let it happen. You know, kind of be, you know what, kind of like match like physics are just there. Gravity's there. Momentum is there. Just kind of use it in whatever you do. And I think that's what really, that's, I think that's what really elite athletes do is they somehow harness, uh, or they, they sort of step into the physics that are already there. They don't try to create their own physics. If that makes sense. I completely agree. Um, and like more on that point is it's, it's like uh, you want to be – the way I look at it is you want to be loud without saying anything. Like mm. without anyone more or less knowing that you're there, it's just like steady Eddie kind of deal. Like yep. Yep. almost every night you turned on the television, Robinson Cano, for a, a stretch of four or five years, it was almost like every night he was two for four with a walk. Yeah, in, or always in the know, mix. One for three, a sack fly, two walks and two RBIs like it was just he was his production was was so steady that it was like we came to almost expect it and that's that's kind of what I wanted to to do with my career is like I wanted people to expect it and like almost not even notice that I like that I was there right I want to notice guys without knowing what their stats are because I don't want the stats to tell me that I should notice you because if I didn't notice you then there's something wrong with the stats. The stats aren't telling me the whole story. That's why there's no substitute for observation. 
because your eyes won't lie to you. And statistics can lie to you. You, you know that as well as I do. You know, you, numbers can tell a different story from what the reality is. When you watch a guy, especially over a long period of time, you really uh, you gain an appreciation for the nuances and the subtleties of his game that no computer, that no system of analytics or metric, metrics can possibly uh, enlighten you to. And I think that's part, I think that's the, I think that's where the rubber meets the road when it comes to scouting, player development, and player evaluation. Um, and uh, I, I think guys like, I mean, I mean, all, all elite players, um, you know, I, I, I can't tell you what guys' stats were in 2017, nor do I care, but I could tell you who the guys were that were the most valuable to that team over that 50 or so game, 55 games that we played. So, um, I, I, I do think that uh, it's critical that you don't close your eyes uh, to players. I think that's part of the reason that scouting and um, college recruiting it has gotten so difficult. And you know that was that was one of the questions that that I kind of had. I told you I had a couple of questions prepared for you. That was one of the one of the questions that I had prepared for you was like now in the days of like the quote unquote showcase circuit, Mm -hmm. the college coaches and the the professional scouts jobs are, are so much tougher. Um, obviously based on like what kind of player you're looking for this, that, and the other, but do you think that the best evaluators of players now are the ones that win at the college level and the ones that consistently win the draft at the professional level because they aren't just present at a showcase reading a bunch of numbers you know seeing how hard a kid hits the ball how hard he throws it it's a good question it's a good question It's a good question, and I think you can only answer that question to be equitable. You can only answer that question by sort of answering it twice. Um, The reality is that in college, the best teams, you know, historically for the last 50 years have not changed. It's not like all of a sudden some small school, you know, with few exceptions, obviously, like the University of Virginia. They were not a great power, and then all of a sudden the University of Virginia – uh, made a real push for baseball and became a, a national champion. But it, that's that's very few and far between. Even Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt was not, you know, 50 years ago was not a, a baseball power. But But the reality is that the teams that are powerful, for the most part, have remained powerful. And that's because they get the pick of the litter from the player pool. So when everyone wants to go to your school, recruiting becomes a lot easier because you're not going to get any no's. So it's easy to it's easy to find the 10 best kids, right? I mean, you really don't have to know a lot about baseball to see, you know, Chandler Taylor hits the ball 500 feet and this guy throws the ball 98 miles an hour. I mean, that's pretty easy to see Uh, at the major league level. uh, It's a little more difficult because there's a draft and you just can't go and take the best players. You know, you have to you have to be really good about. Uh, ascertaining what value a player really has to your particular organization based on your needs at that given point in time. Um, so I, I think uh, in, I think in the pro game, it's much more important. Player evaluation is much more difficult and you're buying futures. See in college, you're not buying futures. 
Kid throws 97 miles an hour in high school. He's going to win in college. In baseball, that same kid that throws 97 miles an hour is going to go to rookie ball. And then he's going to go to high end. And, you know, he can't get hurt. You, you hope he doesn't get hurt. And, you know, you hope he matures and he finds the strike zone. He gets secondary pitches. A lot has to happen for that pick to be worth it five years down the road. And you just don't know because you can't predict the future. So you really are trying to project five years down the road what a player is based on what he is today with a couple of exceptions. You know, it's Ken Griffey Jr. might be a different story, you know, or some, you know, like Alex Bregman. It's a different story. Uh, But that's very, very few guys. Very few. You know, Dave Winfield went right right from University of Minnesota to the major leagues and then the Hall of Fame. Um, So uh, I, I, I think what has I think I think. So there is one salient point that needs to be made when it comes to this whole showcase and travel ball phenomenon is that the numbers for a lot of kids belie their value because they don't play as much. So they're not what they're doing is they're sacrificing time on the field and honing their craft for auditioning at a showcase. You know, they think auditioning at a showcase is somehow part of their development when it's really not. You know, you're not developing by going to a showcase. You're developing by, you know, taking your thousands of swings a week and your thousands of ground balls and, you know, honing your craft every single day. And very and fewer and fewer and fewer kids are encouraged to or, in fact, are doing that. And even if they wanted to do it because so few other kids do it, you know, if you want to go outside and work on your game on your own with somebody else, you'd have to do it by yourself because nobody else is doing it. Everybody's going to a showcase. I speak to a lot of parents who say, you know, my son's not going to play this summer. He's going to go to showcases and camps. Well, your son is going to waste his time this summer. He's certainly not going to get better. He's not going to develop as a player. He may get exposure, which he doesn't really need because the internet has made it, you know, easier for kids to, 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 you know, make contact with colleges and scouts than ever. But I think that's, where the showcasing and this audition mentality uh, has the biggest effect. Not at the highest level of college, because every kid wants to go to Vanderbilt. Every kid wants to go to North Carolina. Every kid wants to go to these name brand schools. So they get the pick of the litter. In Pro Bowl, very, very difficult because you got to pick futures. We are going to, Mike, we are going to take a short break because this is so good. Here's my man, Freddie Mercury. I'm playing this tune, by the way. And we will be right back with Chandler Taylor. CT. You're listening to The Conversation with Tommy Weber. We'll be right back. This episode of The Conversation with Tommy Weber is brought to you by 4momalz.com. Join the fight against Alzheimer's and support our good friends Hunter and Braden Bishop as they bring awareness to a struggle that many families face through their charity, 4mom. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at hashtag 4mom. 
And for all your mortgage needs, call Northern Security Capital Corp., the New York area's most dedicated mortgage broker. If you're buying or refinancing a home, there's only one place to go. Call Northern Security Capital Corp. today at 718-273-1010. And now, back to the show. CT and I are covering a lot of good stuff, a little deep dive into baseball and life, as we always do. Such really good stuff. Um, CT, tell me, uh, tell everybody a little bit about your first imp- How, uh, I want to go, how has Pro Bowl differed from what your perception of Pro Bowl would be prior to your getting drafted? Um, you know, I thought before I got to pro ball, I thought that, um, it was going to be full of guys that were just good and (laughs) hadn't really spent a lot of time kind of like banging on their craft. Right. Um, but I was quickly kind of taken back by the fact that it's the exact opposite, you know, kind of, I was thinking that pro ball was like 20% guys like me who just, you know, found the answers on their own, kind of grinded it out right, right. Um, over the years. And the other 80% were just guys who had the ability to play baseball at a high level. Um, and I was completely wrong. You know, it's probably 80, 20, the other way. You know, 80% of the guys have probably spent thousands and thousands of hours finding the answers on their own, you know, whether it be on the dirt fields of Venezuela or Panama or Dominican Republic or Puerto Rico or, you know, wherever, or even here in America, um, you know, the guys really like own their game. And, you know, that was really refreshing for me to see coming into pro ball. A lot of polish, a lot more polish than you thought. Absolutely. Interesting. All right. So you're uh, hooked up with our buddy down in Fayetteville. So we got to we got to bring him up. All right. Because I, I I'm I'm responsible for making this marriage. You mean the Hulk? <laughs> Some of those. You mean vid- Hulk dude, dude, I'm just going to say this right now because I know. Nobody's listening. <laughs> some of the videos, some of the videos, really, come on, seriously. You have, I think he might have a little too much time on his hands. What do you think? <laughs> a shirtless dumbbell med ball bench press. Oh my God, please. If that's with the man bun. <laughs> that man bun is brutal. That thing is brutal. But you know, when you're that good looking, when you really, when you're that good looking, you could do anything. See, you that's the problem. You, you do whatever, whatever you want. want. It's so unfair. It's so unfair. <laughs> and I thought, because I, I obviously, I, I know him forever. You know, his wife, who also is beautiful. Like, like, I mean, really, it's ridiculous. But I thought that, like, he was the brains of the operation until I got to know Ashley. <laughs> and I lived with Jason yeah. for two years. And I realized, oh, I see what this is. You got that. You got that all wrong. <laughs> See, exactly. I couldn't have been more wronger, if you will. <laughs> uh, I, I I started referring to him last year 
Like you really are the dumb blonde. I can't believe this. This is unbelievable. <laughs> like I, your wife is awesome. She is so smart, and you are really just a little. <laughs> and and so, she knows uh, it too. I love it. A quick, a quick story. A quick story about Ashley. She, uh, you know, she contacted me about about coming to Fayetteville. Yes, yes. Uh, her and her and Lowe coming to Fayetteville and surprising uh, surprising Jay for a yeah. weekend. Yeah. And, you know, it was right after we had opened the new stadium and stuff like that. But uh, I remember meeting her at the hotel and, um, you know, she's just feeding him all these lies, this, that, and the other, and talking about she got in this hotel room with one of her coworkers, whatever. And she, she looks at me after she sends him a text. She's like, you know, honestly, I feel really sorry for him because he, he believes anything I say. <laughs> oh, I love it. I just love it. <laughs> Uh, by the way, you know, you know, as I've, as you know, I mean, Kanzler was just a tremendous player. I've had very few players who could do something great. And I always say this, Jason was a great, not a good outfielder. He was a great outfielder. Uh, he was a major league outfielder as a junior in college. And he's the only player to ever win the gold glove twice. And he also made the worst single worst play any outfielder has ever made under uh, a team that I managed. And all you have to do is mention the Lehigh Valley game to him when he looked like he needed a compass uh, in in the outfield on a ball that he you normally puts in his back pocket, and um, suffice it to say that the best thing that came out of that play was that it didn't hit him in the head. All right, <laughs> didn't hit him in the head. He remembers the play very well. He feels terrible about it, but uh, so. Talk, talk to me about your relationship with him. I think it's really fascinating. You know, you, you guys really took to each other in 2017. And as fate would have it, uh, you know, as, as I've said a million times, he's a rock star. And I knew that uh, Pro Bowl would gobble him up. Uh, he, he signs with the Astros and the organization that you're with. And now you guys are together. So talk to us about that relationship. Yeah, so um, obviously it's summer 2017. Um was a good one for everyone that was involved there in Brewster. But, uh, you know, it's funny because I always tell people that, uh, Jay and I's relationship, like kind of started a little bit on the rocks. Like it was, I noticed that he and I had similar personalities and, you know, we disagreed kind of loudly, um, mm-hmm. on some things. And, I was there, you know, it was, uh, <laughs> it was, it was one of those things where it was like we both realized that we were very alike personality-wise. Um, there was some clash there early, and then I think it took me realizing that like he was there for us. Um, that he you know, was. He wasn't there trying, yep. trying to yep. tell stories about when he was playing pro oh, ball. God. How tedious you is know, that? Whatever. Yeah. It was. He was truly there for us, and whoever wanted to get better he was there to kind of you know be the the bumpers in the bowling lane you know kind of thing it was just he was our sounding board and it was it was cool to have someone who was that close to us in age uh who was that fresh out of pro ball kind of be there and be on our side so quickly yeah i and and just so that people know you know we we would Early work would be whatever time, and whatever time I got there, Jason was either there or you know with me. And we, I mean, we spent we spent a lot of hours, and Jason spent 
a, a even more hours than most um, with you guys, especially uh, well in any in every way, hitting defense and just general counsel. And you're right; that's a good way to put it. The bumpers on the bowling lane. Um, uh, I, I what I what I really was happy to see, and I, I didn't. Obviously, I didn't know Jason as a coach. He played for me, and we became really good friends. Um, and uh, won a championship together with him as a player. And I, I didn't know because I, I know his personality as well as anyone. He's very intense. Um, he's highly intelligent. Um, and he's an explorer. And sometimes, you know, when you're that kind of person – uh, you know, you, you, you can rub people the wrong way. You know, you, you know, it's, it's not always easy, uh, but it's always beneficial. And, um, to see his maturity and his humility, uh, that season when really you could pull rank on everybody if you want, uh, and to see him be so caring and giving, I really think was a, a huge, huge part of our growth as a team, um, and, and that championship. So, um, Tell me about uh, his role uh, in Fayetteville and, um, you know, just give me a uh, Reader's Digest version of what what your um, impressions are of him in that role. Yeah, well, I mean, it really started in spring training. Um, you know, it took about a week, maybe 10 days of us being in, in camp when I really started noticing, like, guys just – gravitated toward him and you know they they just wanted to hear him talk and you know that's when I knew like whoever was lucky enough to to go to Fayetteville was was getting a good one um because you never it goes unsaid but you never doubt that like he's on your side he's got your back and when you have that to kind of fall back on, it's easy to listen to that guy. It's easy to listen to his suggestions. Um, you know, when you're questioning whether or not um, a certain guy is in it for your your best interest or his own, um, that's when you start to question whether or not right. uh, that guy's suggestions, you know, are best for you. Right. And you're questioning his motives. Anyone, yeah, and, and I don't think anyone – in Fayetteville has once questioned whether or not Jay wants them to be a major league player. And, you know, that's the foundation of the players relationship with him. And, you know, I was only there for, you know, 17 games, I think, but in those 17 games, we came a long way as like, as a group, of hitters because he just like funnels confidence into the entire group and makes you feel like it doesn't matter if, you know, we're playing the Yankees today, like we're going to, we're going to hit, we're going to get ours. Right. And, you know, having that kind of presence in the dugout is, is huge. And he, a big thing about him is he knows when to not say anything. Yeah, that's important. And that's probably one of the best qualities you can you can find in a coach is when a guy knows when to just be quiet and let the players just play. Yep. Yep. And and you know, whether or not he learned that from you or you know, learned that from 
his days in pro ball or, you know, wherever he got it. Like, I think that's something that is innate and, you know, he's got it and it's a really comforting feeling like in the dugout and not having to look over your shoulder when you're working on something, uh, not having to look over your shoulder when you have a bat at bat because, you know, he was just there five years ago. Like he knows that, you know, the rough patches are going to happen and he's always there to encourage us and, and stuff like that. So it's been, it's been really good. And, and Jay and I've got, have done nothing but get closer, you know, since spring training started. And cause you know, when spring training started this year, that's the first time I'd seen him in, you know, 18 months. Right. Right. And it was like, you know, we had just seen each other yesterday. Right. But from then to now, it's, you know, the relationship has done nothing but get stronger. Yeah, I'm not surprised. And, and you, look, we all learn from stuff from each other. The extent to which he learned stuff from me, I'm, you know, you know I, I learned stuff from him and you, and it, it's always a mutual thing. Uh, but even as a kid, as a player, uh, he was that, he had all those characteristics. He was a quiet leader. He was smart enough to know when to say something and when not to say something. And guys like that are easy to manage because you leave them alone. You know, trust is an essential element in any in any relationship, especially in the player manager coach relationship. You got to be able to trust that you each have each other's back and each have each other's best interests in mind when dealing with one another. And, um, you know, that was very, very evident with with Jay uh, uh, as as a player. You know, I knew that he was a guy I never had to worry about ever. Um, And and. You know, managers and coaches need guys that they can ignore. <laughs> I mean, you know, you can't, right. it's, it's like having 25 kids. You can't watch them all at the same time. So you have to have some that you don't have to worry about. And he was that guy, except for that afternoon in Lehigh Valley when the ball almost hit him in the head. Um, but uh, he, you know, I, I'm not surprised at all. I think he's a rising star. I think that, uh, you know, he's going to be able to basically um, chart his own course in pro ball because he really is uh, something that is, is desperately needed uh, at that level. And I'm so glad to see, you know, you guys, it really warms my heart uh, every time I, you know, I, I think about the two of you together. It's really, really cool. It's so, it's so cool. Um, and I speak to Jay almost every day. So anything that, uh, anything he knows he gets from me. <laughs> every- I love that. <laughs> uh, uh, oh my God. We could bury. All right, Tommy. I got a. Uh, I got. I got a few questions for oh, for Christ. you. Okay. Um, and <laughs> they all they all are about you know kind of about um, Major oh. League Baseball and like okay. the direction it's going. Oh and, Jesus! And Uh-oh. stuff like that. All right, I'll alienate everybody. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> all right. So um, my first one, uh, your beloved Yankee. Uh, uh, they're not so beloved anymore, but that's okay. Go ahead. <laughs> they fired Kate Smith, anyway. so right now I'm not speaking to them. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. So, what what's to be said about kind of their lack of struggle, despite being bit by the biggest of injury bugs that I can remember, probably in the last ten or fifteen years. Um. You know, within the course of the first 30 games, they lost all nine or all eight starting position players for at least a 10-day stint on the disabled list. 
Uh-huh. They were pretty much playing, you know, for a 30-game stretch with a triple-A team. And this is a team with, you know, um, over $200, uh, over a $200 million payroll this year. I, like, what's to be said about them having pretty much a triple-A team come to the big leagues and them not miss a beat? I, I think there's, a, uh, there's something everybody's going to want to hear and something nobody's going to want to hear in this answer. Number one, I think players in general are overvalued. Um, I think that, um, players, uh, are far more fungible than the players union wants to let, let on that they are. And that Bill James, although he said it in a clumsy way, had a point, he had a point that a lot of guys teams can do without, I mean, what's the difference between a guy who hits 238 and a guy who hits 254 and a guy who hits 18 home runs and a guy who hits 13 home runs. I mean, if you're going to pay one guy nine million and one guy a million, why would you pay the guy nine million? There's no real market difference in their production, uh, and I think that what's happening in baseball, what you're seeing, uh, is a move more towards the Broadway model, where they'll pay the star, but the chorus and the guy who plays, you know, whatever, there's some, you know, the, the brother-in-law is going to get some version of scale because. It's just a reality, and I think teams are starting to prove that, and the Yankees are proof positive of this. Uh, the other thing I think it proves is that the reason you watch sports is for the exact reason is for the exact thing that's happening to the Yankees right now. You can't predict the future; you just don't know. That's why you could take all the data you have, right? Which would have said that the all the data would have said the Yankees need to be like twelve games out of first place by now, right? There's no one that all the analytics guys in the Yankee offices must be they must be hiding somewhere because how do you explain this? Well, you can't because you can't predict future performance to a certainty. And there is such a thing as getting hot. There is. I'm sorry, data people. There is some guys get hot. And while they're hot, ride them because you're not what you do. You are what you are. So. This kid who's playing third base for them, who's a journeyman player, who's a tremendous defensive third baseman, is now hitting like 340. Guess what? If he plays enough, he's probably going to hit 218. But he's hitting 340 right now. So you ride him. How do you know? He might do this for another two weeks. He might do this for another four weeks. This may be his outlier season, and he hits 300 for you, and he plays a great third base for the rest of the year. So I think it's a two-phased answer. I think that, and, and I think most importantly, is that this really does kind of take the the technocrats and stand them on their ear because you cannot ever, to any degree of certainty, predict what a player is going to do over a month or two. Any player can be good for a month or two, and they have just been fortunate enough, and baseball, like everything else in life, is a lot about fate. Luck, the ball bouncing your way. The Yankees are fortunate that they have six or seven guys, which is, you know, statistically an anomaly, who are performing at a higher level than anyone could have possibly predicted. Guess what? That's when you look up into the sky and you say, thank you, God. I appreciate it. All right. You like that answer? I figured that was coming. Yeah, I, I loved it because, <laughs> you know, we've talked about this before. Like, um, I think we mentioned before the 2001 Mariners. Um Right, setting setting the franchise wins record. After after losing two of the ten greatest players that have ever played the game, Ken Griffey Jr. and Alex Rodriguez are arguably ten of the two two of the ten greatest players that have ever played the game. The Mariners set the the nineteen eighty Olympic team beat the Russians. 
There it is. Right? Not this so, game. Question, Not tonight. Go ahead. Question number two. I'm a hot right now. From, I'm very hot right now. I'm from killing. my end. All right. So it's a pretense, this question. Um, let's go ahead and lay it out there. Obviously, data analytics is is a big part of baseball and, you know, minor league development. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's still people out there like me who believe that um, the players that last at the big league level are the ones that develop this sense of autonomy in their own game like they own their game no question and you know that's that's the only way to really withstand the ebbs and flows of baseball and my question is with the new generation of players mm-hmm. now starting to like slowly infiltrate the game right. like the players who were really brought up played their entire minor league career in a data analytics type environment those get those players are starting to come into the game you right, know pete right. alonzo nick Zell, right. right. james paddock you know the mm-hmm. the or you know the paddock kid from uh san yep. diego yep. yep you know over the next 10 years two questions two part questions what's your biggest fear and what are you most excited to see my biggest fear is it becomes a crutch that's my biggest fear I would hate to see that happen to players where you really think that without the computer, without the data, I can't exist. You know, it's like, um, you know, I see it in golf a lot. You know, guys don't freewheel it. You know, if, you know, if a golfer doesn't know he's 92 yards, what's the wind blowing? Well, the reality is you're one of the top 125 players in the world. And if you had no information, you should be able to hit the ball within five feet of the hole because you're one of the best uh, in the world. When you start to think that the reasons for your success are extrinsic, I think that's a road that's dangerous to go down psychologically, emotionally, and mentally for players. I think when you know that the data is good and it supplements what you already have, that's an effective use of the data. I'm all in favor of it. So that's my fear. Secondary. Make it be secondary. Correct. Yeah, I, I want to know. Look, I play golf. I love golf. I want to know my swing speed, my launch. Mm-hmm. I want to know all that stuff. But if you think I'm on the golf course, and that's what I'm thinking about when I got to hit a six iron to a green that's cut behind, I'm I'm not doing that. I'm sorry. I'm relying on what I know I can do, and 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 my feel for the game, and my athleticism, and all the work that I've put in that makes me a good player. And I know what I can do. And if do. you hit that, and if you hit that same six iron into the tree, and it comes out of the tree. To a six foot uphill putt. That it's a great shot. Your sleep. It's a great it's shot. A great shot. Because I'm sorry, and you can at me all day long, all you twittiots out there. It's not about the process. It's about the results. I want results. I don't care how I win the lot. You know, if I won the lottery, I would care less about the process. It's the results that matter. And it is. And we have to get back to that. It's really not about the process. You can get stuck in that. Process is important. You have to have a good process, but it's not about the process. They don't pay off because you have a good process. They don't throw champagne on one another in a locker room because of the process. They pay, they pay off and they throw champagne on one another because of the result. I like that. That's a, that's a really good way to end that answer too, by the way. Sorry. All right, so... <clears throat> Let's have let's have a little fun with this one. Um, so we're about what a uh, quarter of the way through the season, about forty two or forty three games for for most teams. I need um, 
you're way too early, two MVP candidates from each league, and two way too early Cy Young candidates from each league. Oh my god! I'll give you my. I'll give you. I'll give you my answer. You know, I don't. I don't know enough guys. Believe it or not, throughout the league, uh, way too early MVP. I would say uh, Cody Bellinger. I think that you know. Okay. So you're I saying? Figure, I figure the national. I figure the National League is probably a two horse race at this point. It's between Bellinger and Yelich, whoever. Whoever kind of sustains the the momentum, right? And and way too early means I think I think it's too early to proclaim Bellinger the MVP, right? I don't know that I don't right, know that he's right, going right. to keep. I I think Bellinger has more holes in his game at the plate than Yelich does. I could see Yelich sustaining this pace and just having an epic year. He's that kind of player. I mean, he's really he's really a next level guy. Like he's an elite elite player. Um, so I I would say. Uh, Bellinger on the MVP in the Cy Young, I would say the kid from the Yankees who has like nine wins. Two, I, I I don't know that. First of all, I don't know that they're gonna they don't allow you to get a win anymore. And also, he's young, and people are starting to talk to him. Oh, talk about him already in the Cy Young. Uh, Felix Herman, who is tremendous. I mean, he looks terrific, but um, you know, he's young. I don't think he'll get the opportunity to log enough innings. Um and to get the gaudy enough stats uh, to win the Cy Young Award, and he's also a young kid, and I'm betting I'll take the field against him. So I got um, I just got you know uh, a few quick ones that I um have been seeing a lot on MLB Network and ESPN, this, that, and the other. When I watch the games, you know these guys obviously stand out. Um, and before I say this. This is this has nothing to do with me having any kind of Astros bias. Just some of the Astros guys happen to be the best guys right now. That's that's why they're, um, that's why they're the best team because <laughs> they got the best guys. <laughs> I, so my my three in the American League are Bregman, Springer, and Betts. Um, Bregman and Springer are kind of one and the same. I figure like whoever ends up having the better year for the Astros because they're going to be a good team in the end is probably going to have the best chance at the MVP. Um, but as of right now, Bregman, 270, 14 bombs, 34 RBIs. Springer, 320, 16 bombs, 40 RBIs. Jeez. And those guys are hitting one-two in the same lineup. Jeez. Um, Mookie Betts kind of got off to a slow start, 289, seven homers, 23 RBIs right now. But you got to think that, you yep. know, that guy's athleticism and, and his ability just – or they're unbelievable. And, and I think, you know, he's, when you look up in the end, he's probably going to be hitting 320 again, probably another 25 or 30 homers, probably another hundred RBIs, you know, yada, 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 steady Eddie. Um, Bellinger and Yelich, Bellinger is still hitting over 400, which is insane to me. Yes. Um, 15 homers, 41 RBIs. Yelich just hit his 17th homer today. Um, he's hitting 333 with 39 RBIs. Um, wow. Florida gave him away. My, I would say, I would say my Cy Young, uh, contenders, probably Verlander and the, the kid from, uh, from Tampa Bay that kind of came out of nowhere. Tyler glass. Now that guy's good. Uh, yeah, he's on the DL right now, but I mean, Verlander seven and one with a two, three, eight. Uh, and he's got six. My, what I like to look at is 
innings pitched per start. Um, because if you're a starter and you're only throwing, you know, five innings or five and a third, I don't think like, you know, you should be right. I agree. In in contention for the Cy Young. I but agree. Verlander sitting Verlander sitting on sixty four and a third through ten starts, uh, with seventy seven strikeouts. Wow. Glass now with a one eight six. Um, you know, got hurt, I guess, about a week and a half ago, was sitting on forty eight innings through eight starts. So I mean, both of those guys are pitching into the seventh inning every start. Um my dark horse National League candidate to win the Cy Young is the guy from the Brewers, uh, Zach Davies. He's got the second lowest ERA in Brewers franchise history through eight starts. He's got a he's four and zero with a one five four ERA, forty six innings and eight starts. Doesn't strike out a lot of guys, but a one five four ERA in today's game is, is pretty good. <laughs> And John, John Lester's kind of been the bright spot for for Chicago, even though the weather's been miserable. He's got a one one six ERA with 31, 38 innings pitched through seven starts. So, well, there's some uh, there's some guys there's some that, gaudy uh, numbers right there. I'll tell you what, there are some guys having ridiculous seasons. Ridiculous. I mean, Springer's Springer's on pace to drive in one hundred and sixty runs <laughs> as a leadoff hitter. <laughs> He's like Hack Wilson. <laughs> Bellinger, same thing. Bellinger and Yelich both on pace to drive in about 160. And I'm a big RBI guy. I'm sorry. You got to drive in runs and you got to score runs. That's what the game's about. You got to you make runs. So if you make a lot of runs, either by scoring them or driving them in, you're a valuable guy. I can't take no this, doubt. you know, 28 home runs, a guy drives in 43 runs. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> That's like Todd Frazier numbers. Oh, crap. Please don't. Don't go there. I can't. I can't go there. <laughs> I can't. My God. <laughs> wow. That's pretty cool. Listen. Okay. All right. So what do you, what do you think about, what do you think about my man Cano uh, going to the other side of town? Coming back to New York, but going to the other side of town. What do you, what do you got? Oh, I mean, that? he's a 36 year old guy. You know, it's about, it's about, can he, can he do it every day at 36 years old, play the middle of the field and never DH. It's tough. The national league is difficult. You know, you don't get free day. You know, you don't get days off where you can hit. You don't, you either get a day off or you play. So, um, very, very difficult for a 36 year old guy. I'm, I'm, you know, who's played a lot of games, logged a lot of times, got a lot of mileage on him to see if he could make it through an entire season, you know, productively at this point in his life. You know, time and tide waits for nobody, man. It's just, uh, you know, nobody, uh, plays into their, you know, late 30s in the middle of the infield and, and is very productive. If he is, it's a huge bonus for the Mets. But right now, you know, it's dicey. He's off to a tough start. He's not, he's not hitting for any power and he's not hitting for a high average. So, you know, I, I think the Mets are holding their breath right now. Another question on him. Does he get to 3,000 hits? Just got to his 2,500. 2,500 hits. If he, if he wants to, if he wants to, he could do like a Tom Glavin and hang around long enough. I, I think he can. If he wants to, if it's worth it, if that's something that he wants, he can collect another 500 hits because he could stay around yeah. easily another three or four years easily. He can, he'll go to the American yeah. league. He could DH. If he does that, he'll get his 3000 hits and he'll go to the hall of fame. Yeah. I'm All right. Listen, too. my, my man, uh, I'm getting the, uh, the cutoff sign. Uh, we have gone over, but this has been so great, man. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on, especially with short notice. You know, this is the conversation we have every time we, every time we speak. And usually it goes on for about an hour or two. Um, 
I I can't tell you how uh, how happy I am that you're going to be coming off the disabled list and getting back to playing every day and hanging out with my man. I'll be down there. I'll see you guys uh, in early June. And, um, you know, just uh, keep having at it. And whatever you need, you know, I'm always here for you. Thanks, man. I appreciate you having me again, Tommy. And, uh, you know, it's always good to talk to you. And it's always good to pick your brain. You bet. Same here, man. I love you. And we are going to... All right, love you too, Tommy. Say goodbye, and we'll see you next week as my man, Mike. Yeah. Love you, Cleo. listening to the conversation with tommy weber have any thoughts on today's episode ideas for a new one join the conversation on twitter at tommy weber b-ball or instagram at tommy weber baseball and share your thoughts tommy's back next week with a new episode of the conversation subscribe and listen for free at apple Podcasts, spotify iHeartRadio, google play Castbox, TuneIn radio radio public and stitcher and of course always at tommyweberbaseball.com Um...